Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bootaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This is the Season 6 wrap. We'll start with the Season 6 finale. Then I will include a short excerpt of my conversation with medievalist Brian Pavlak. Check out his book, Game of Thrones vs. History Written in Blood. Finally, I address some listener feedback on the question of where's the climax in this book? Just one housekeeping note, when Electric Bukaloo comes back in a couple weeks, I'm going to go to a two-episode-per-week format. So I'm going to split up my conversation between the show and the books. So you can look forward to that in a couple weeks. Without further ado, here is comic Steve Osborne. Man, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you right now, that this opening sequence, the score... Uh, it, it was to me like you talk about the last episode and how much you love it. That opening sequence was about pitch perfect all the way to the uh, to the explosion. Yeah, and I don't know if they've used piano before. I mean, that was a very haunting. Everything about that was it's just so ominous, right? You know, right. something horrible is going to happen. Easily the most tense I've been for any extended period of time watching the show. Okay. Right. I was I was so so hooked. They did it. Just it was about again. It's perfect, and it's, again, this is something that other shows. That's how the season ends, right? Oh, absolutely. And this is how they're gonna. This is how they start the the episode. Right? Yeah. So that was the part where I was like, "Wow, we just that was what we are. That's how we coming out the gate on this one." So I was uh, I was very very pleased. Uh, this whole episode to me was was one of the. One of the best I've seen out so far out of the series. It's really quite amazing to see, because Battle of the Bastards was so good, but for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were really just focused on Danny's war and John's war, but this one was all over the place. You could have ended this episode like nine different times, like right. you know, <laughs> huge moments that you could end. You could have ended on Arya's revenge for the red wedding right you could have ended on cersei sitting the iron throne i mean there's so many places that you could have ended this thing king of the north all of that business right uh all right so i loved how marjorie was kind of the only one in the room that like she doesn't know how they're all gonna die but she she's pretty sure they're she all gets gonna it die. yeah <laughs> well and then you see what happens and it's like even if she had gotten out like right away there's it would, it would have been all for naught. Yeah. That explosion yeah. was was pretty massive. I loved that you started the episode with the church bells ominously ringing. Mm-hmm. And then the explosion happens. 
and then a church bell just straight up murder somebody. Oh man, that's like a VW bug just smashing smashing through the streets. Uh, that was wonderful. Steve, I do not like little kids with knives. Man, see that's the other thing. I mean, talk about and I, that probably that probably added to the tension that you're just watching these kids just go bananas, and it was just it, honestly like it could have been a 15 minute episode, and I would have been 100 percent satisfied. He must be giving those kids some really great candy. <laughs> Either that, or it's just enough They're candy to, to, to get them so dude. amped. They're just so amped on candy that they don't even know. I mean, we all been there. <laughs> You had that like Halloween. You tell your kids, "All right, you can have a few." They sneak a few, and the next Too thing you know, red dye. <laughs> next thing you know, they're just like, "There's murder in their hearts." <laughs> they yeah, probably just is, told the guy the that, "Hey, this is story for Halloween." No, this is the origin story for pinatas. I mean, that's what they were telling him. That guy's full of candy. Get him! <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh Jesus! Episode was relentless. It was so good. I, it was, I mean, honestly, I, I, I was kind of blown away at how much I liked it. Like it was, it, yeah, it, again, the, the feeling, the, the, the overwhelming sense of, of tension that I had in the beginning was like, I'm like, how do you, how do you start this way? And so it's, it's interesting because then now you're just going on this, this wild journey. And I, cause again, I think I like the way that they really, really play up loris's uh trial so i mean they really lull you and then when it all is said and done it's like well who cares because he just got wiped out so all of that was meaningless you know what i mean in terms of of what it means for the overall narrative and so the fact that that you sit through it and then all this other stuff happened like that was that was incredible it was like it's a real great sense of misdirection too i want to put a little bow on our mace tyrell conversations <laughs> There is no way, Steve, that Loris and Marjorie have any genetic connection to Mace Tyrell. <laughs> There's absolutely no way that that guy birthed that god and goddess. I mean, they are the they are the two of the most attractive people on earth, and I just can't see them coming from Mace. Skips a gen. <laughs> <laughs> Suppose so. I think that maybe, you know, it, you know, Jon Snow was clearly not fathered by Ned Stark. Maybe Rhaegar Targaryen was just fathering kids all over the. That's right. He just spraying his seed everywhere he goes. <laughs> uh, man, so Grand Maester Pycelle is a pincushion. Yeah. Marjorie's gone. Loras is gone. The High Sparrow is gone. Yeah, I just love this. There's something about seeing Cersei, a monster, and Kyburn. It's just something so... How are you speaking my language, man? Cersei's all in black now. Yeah. And I thought that... Okay, so... so I she's the way... Sith Lord. Yeah, right. Exactly. She's the Sith Lord, right? So, if you, if you remember how the season, this season began, it was Cersei receiving a prophecy... That all of her children would die, right? Right. And so you, it's this, it was a weird flashback. Like, we don't really ever see a lot of flashbacks in this show. Mm -hmm. But she's kind of living her life 
at least suspicious that all of her children are going to die. Yeah. And I think, you know, she freaks out that Tom or freaks out that Joffrey's gone. But by the time Marcella and Tom and go, I think she I think she plays that scene really well when it's kind of like she's grieving, but she's not all that surprised. Yeah, it feels like it, it felt like after the daughter died, um, she was kind of reserved to the idea that this prophecy was right. And uh, I'm just going to have to sort of accept that and not let that. I mean, it's interesting. Like we so we, so you mentioned the concept of uh, you know the resurrection kind of concept, the rebirth of sure. Danny and and Jon Snow. And it's like if you really look at, it, I mean, this whole series is about some sort of rebirth for like each character and how they are like r- wrestling with or settling into mm-hmm. who they are. Um, you know, I think the yeah, the walk death and of rebirth a, yeah. is a big thing. I mean, we saw that with the Hound just recently, right? And the walk of shame with Cersei, I think, certainly changed her. Right? I mean, I think that like so. So it's interesting that the High Sparrow broke her, but not in the sense that he broke Loras. He almost broke her of any and all whatever whatever goodness that she could sort of tap into or feign for the mm-hmm. sake of her children. Pretty much gone. Like she's now, she's now different. Like again, going back to that, we we talked about it either last week or the week before, or like how Arya was kind of like a proxy, Lady Stoneheart for this sort of hell bent on revenge. Sure, you can make that same case for a lot of these folks, right? Like there's kind of, you kind of have two options. You either you either become uber justice or you go revenge because you see that as as a justice type of thing, justice for you and um. Because Jamie, you know, Jamie's boring now. He's got one hand. He's got a nice haircut and a kick-ass leather jack. But, you know, for the most part. Yeah, his, Jamie's return, you know, sort of shocking return to King's Landing. And just seeing the seeing the, the sept completely decimated. And then watch, along the sides, watching his sister and lover or whatever ascending to the iron throne at that point he's like he's just a full-on spectator and yeah. she's so out outpaced him that uh i mean it's it's really difficult to see how i mean i guess the point is it was re- it was really quite arresting how how shocked he was about how this all went down yeah um, sort of this, like, I leave the castle for one minute. I know. He's like, he's feeling pretty good about himself. He's thinking, hey, I, I got River Run. That's, that's yeah. Really <laughs> yeah. Blackface is dead. And, uh, you know, Edmure's back in the old dungeon. Should be should be a, a good time for some celebratory incest. Yeah, he's he comes back and realizes, oh, wait, Cersei's now a Sith Lord. <laughs> Okay. All right, Tommen, uh, suicide plus regicide. So he, he both yeah, both of true. these things. Um, and uh, you, now, okay, now you called it, mm-hmm. but I'm guessing you didn't. Did you Did you know that was going to happen when you saw him looking out the window? That's when I was like, and, and Heather called that too. But so I didn't even mention my prediction at this point to her because I didn't want to. If I was right, I don't want to like introduce a spoiler that even if it's not 
one that I I know is a spoiler. You know what I mean? Like, sure, sure, sure. And so she was, she's like, oh, I bet he's going out that window. So I think it's, it feels like it's sort of directed that way. I was totally shocked when I first saw it. I was there. Like, right? I, 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 <laughs> it just, I just never thought Tommen had it in him. Had it in him. <laughs> to, I really to make didn't. It any, to make any decision. So <laughs> no, the the idea that it was just like he's just like I'm so in over my head. I don't know what to do. Or that everything he, I mean, he was just so in love with Marjorie, sort and he committed himself to this this uh, high sparrow. And yeah, and he's so he's a true believer, and he's in love with Marjorie. Like the two things that he. They give him any meaning at all. Just went up and right. And then on the other hand, you're like, and I know my mother didn't approve of any of that, and now I got to go deal with that. Yeah, maybe part of it's kind of like maybe he knows his mom did it, and maybe he's like, well, she doesn't get to have me. Yeah, there's a lot there, right? I mean, like, cause, cause I think I think he's aware that that Cersei's capable of of quite a bit. Yeah. Um, or at least he has enough like fear, right? And so mm-hmm. if that's the case, it's like, well, you know, forget all this. What am what am I what am I living for? It, it was, yeah. So I mean, I'm like, all right, I, I didn't expect it to go that way, but uh, but it was nice to have a little a little prediction. So go, this go episode, way. more than any other, provided closure for the red wedding, right? Because sure. you've got you've got John who finally defeats the the uh, the Boltons, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and and that and you get a callback for that in that enthronement scene up north. And then, of course, Arya uh, decides that she's going to make literally make mincemeat of Blackwalder and Lothar. Yeah, that was like as soon as the, as soon as the. The servant or whatever said uh, they're here i'm like oh he's eating them <laughs> <laughs> and then she gets her little you know uh mission impossible moment right which does add a little confusion because they're like so she's she still gets to do faces huh yeah i guess she can do faces so that's that that part didn't you know, that was oh she earned that one i guess well, she stole a face, I suppose. Uh, or she knows how to make a face work now. I don't... Yeah. I mean, I guess there's enough... She did enough training for that. So I'm like, all right, I'll just... I'll, I'll allow it. And she's just kind of reveling in in this... Well, okay, first of all, it's pretty cold-blooded. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cold-blooded. Uh <laughs> Uh, this, so she's the same girl that was kind of given eyes to Jamie Lannister earlier. Mm-hmm. And let me just say that Braun is significantly better company than Walder Frey. <laughs> uh, and uh, so and that made me think, like, okay, so maybe maybe Jamie's na- next, but uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, because I thought that there was going to be some payoff between that girl and Jamie, and then, and then of course it turns out to be Arya, um, which I didn't really see coming until I saw the thumb in the pie. Yeah, and then of course it's like, oh yeah, that's Arya. <laughs> <laughs> uh, poor Edmure, back in the cell. <laughs> 
Yeah, Edmir just, I mean, that seems like his official title is poor Edmir. <laughs> poor Edmir. That's right. Uh, Sam gets to be in, like, nerd paradise. Yeah, I suppose. Sam's an interesting, it's an interesting character to watch because it's just like, I'm like, it's every, I mean, I feel like I've been every, every time I'm anywhere with Sam, I'm like, well, Sam is like the guy that should be dead by now, like in many different ways, not just in the fact that he can't really fight real well or all this stuff, but just because you make him so, they've done such a good job of like, he's in so endearing that like, I'm like, endearing just doesn't survive. Right. No, endearing makes makes his death a motivator for Jon Snow or Gilly or someone like that. Right. Davos and Mel finally yeah. have their, their... I mean, this episode is packed. Yeah, and he he doesn't, you know... I mean, Davos doesn't go to kill her or anything. He just orders her execution. Well, he makes a speech. I mean, that's... <laughs> that's what he does. He, he gave... That, those were his harshest words. Look, I'm, I may not be a hardborn executor. <laughs> so, okay. John shows her mercy. She's a, she's a child murderer. He doesn't know the exact circumstances of how it went down. I mean, she did it, but it's also like, hey, she yeah, also Stannis. She said she's burned, she burned her at the stake. Yeah, says we all did. It's Stannis and the mom. And I, had, yeah. I, had, I, had a, I had a permission slip. Steve, I really think we should talk about the Tower of Joy. Tower of Joy. Okay. So, Bran goes back into his little time warp. Mm-hmm. And he sees Ned going up the stairs. This time he doesn't yell, but Ned turns around anyway. Did you catch that? I did catch that, yeah. So, I th- that's, that's somewhat interesting. Uh, he goes upstairs and he overhears a conversation between Lyanna, Ned's younger sister, and Ned. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're like everyone else, you paused it and turned on subtitles. Um, no. Oh, all right. Okay. Well, I'm curious what you make of that conversation. Um, I I caught that. Uh... Oh, because of the like, it was pretty low, right? pretty low you couldn't really hear what they were saying but i think i mean i think that 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 scene is supposed to reveal something and i just want to yeah i mean i i caught that uh you know he had to take the credit for or he had a, he had a responsibility for um the baby right because uh because robert would have it killed okay so you you heard i think you heard the necessary parts of the conversation i think the subtitles yeah. just kind of say whisper uh, okay most so I didn't of it, miss the whisper part. You know, I, I, the important part of the conversation was that you know Robert will do something to the baby or something. All right. So the so the big reveal is that uh, it's interesting how like Ned gets uncomplicated in one aspect, but then more complicated in another. Right. Sure. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. on one hand, it's like, wow. I mean, he really was faithful to Catelyn, but also he was okay with letting that die with her. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and in addition to that, you know, we go to the very next scene and I think everyone who's shouting King of, King in the North is assuming that this is Ned Stark's son, right? Right. Um, yeah. Would, 
yeah so would they be shouting that had you know if they knew that this is actually not i mean it's, it's ned stark's nephew right so that's yeah. not nothing but yeah but that's but i mean you've also got his daughter right there right right so that's where i think you end up with the uh that's where the complication really lies because we're seeing this because there's already i mean that it's already kind of complicated because uh, little finger uh already sort of plants this seed to Sansun. I, I don't think we're really clear at this point um how she's how that seed is 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 being taken right i think i think that <laughs> i was you know what i wrote down um so th- you could just give me northman swords raised shouting king of the north every time it's going to give me sh- chills i just yeah, yeah every time i love it and then total buzzkill little finger in the corner right right just mm. <laughs> and it, it, what i and so i'm trying to interpret that that back and forth like the the look at sansa like i don't know if there's an element of like like hey i told you so or if it's also a sense of like well this isn't exactly going the way i wanted but with little finger well, you, you never know that, either yeah in addition to that sansa is she's lived her life being passed around by men who are uh, considerably more powerful than she is. Right. And here again is, you know, she's at the table. She deserves a lot of credit for saving the day. Right. Right. And now she's kind of sitting watching her, you know, bastard brother receive all of these, all of the glory. And then Littlefinger is just sitting there thinking like, yeah, but what about me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating thing because if for Sansa, if Sansa's not getting the credit, that means Littlefinger's not getting the credit. Um, and the question is because, and we talk about this all the time, is like Sansa's probably the most difficult character to read in this series. And again, I'm not sure if that's intentional or not, or if it's yeah, just that she's yeah. not well fleshed out and so that part so that's where i i think that's where i live with a certain amount of tension where i'm like am i seeing a a series flaw or am i seeing perhaps maybe something something kind of brilliant you know what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well i think I'm, it does bring a bit more tension knowing i guess the question is not knowing how much is she ned's daughter or is she Littlefinger's protege because if if she's a little bit of both then you're not quite sure how to read that look between the two right because they're because he he as much as we can understand and as much as we can ever trust Littlefinger, we hear his he he expresses his explicit intention to he wants to be on the iron throne and i don't Mm -hmm. think we've gotten that before Mm -hmm. um in fact i think we've even talked about in in a past episode that that he he has a plan we're not exactly sure what the the overall deal is but it, it, it's all about expanding right he keeps expanding his influence and his power and it doesn't feel like it's just to watch the world burn it feels like there's some sort of end game involved so the idea that he is making an uh you know overtures to get to the iron throne like okay well that that makes sense now um uh and that would be quite a quite a journey to get there. Um, so, but then at the same time, it's like, well, he's really. But then he's playing at his hand uh, to Sansa, whom so that either suggests he trusts her or he trusts that she is naive enough to to follow him. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's so again, and that all assumes that 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 he's being. But I think he sees that, right? I mean, I think what he's he's saying is like he's trying to play the 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 I can make you happy love card or whatever it is. Um, which that that in and of itself feels like if there's a ruse in there, that's probably it because. I don't think he feels that way other than maybe, maybe in some perverse way, but ultimately she's a name he can use. I suppose so. I think that there is part of him that feels like my origin story is that I was always in love with Kat. I didn't have enough prestige to be, you know, warranted as a suitor in in the Tully eyes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what motivated him to rise in the ranks and, and try to, grab more power so i do think that there's something about the trophy of having cat's daughter that motivates him yeah and if he still has a grudge against ned that's another sure there there's a lot there's a lot um there's a lot personally that can be gained from that um in addition yeah I, i think that there's something about the iron throne that is sort of maybe his ultimate goal but Having that little tro- you know trophy bride on the side is maybe not as big of a goal, but it's kind of important to this vision that he's got for himself. Right. I mean, this is the ultimate, like, Littlefinger strikes me as a, like, he's, the effort that he's going through is not to get a little, but to get it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about Jon Snow. So Jon Snow is not Ned's son. Right. He's he- kind of a Stark. He is well. His his mother Lyanna was a Stark, right? His father, Targaryen. Is, yeah, a Targaryen, which makes John at least a bastard Targaryen. So does that? So what does that do? So yeah. So I mean, in terms of, so it really doesn't mean a whole lot, right? I mean, in terms of, I mean, he's not like if it'd be one thing if it had been revealed that he was a Baratheon, right? Because then that could put him in a spot for uh, King's Landing. Not that 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 whole thing is a is well. A being mess a Targaryen, now, okay. So, so Rhaegar Targaryen was next in line for the Iron Throne, mm-hmm. and then Robert Bar- Baratheon, Robert over, right. yeah, right, right. So overthrew him. So you could say that that the given that there are so few Targaryens left. You could say that the the bastard of Rhaegar, who who had a claim to the throne, has a claim to the throne. Yeah. So, in addition to that, he is Danny's nephew. Hmm. Well, yeah that <laughs> that certainly has uh, potential to be something, right? Because I mean, I don't know. Targaryens like to keep it in the family, right? Well, whether they like it or then in this case, they might not know that, right? I mean, there, cause I, there, there, there's this obviously with the Dario Danny sequence, um, got to marry somebody. And, uh, there's not a lot of eligible bachelors out there anymore that, that are worth a damn. Um, I mean, John's kind of like, Right now, he seems like the obvious choice, right? I mean, if you could mm. unify the well, the and north. then you got the whole thing about like if this really is sort of the song of ice and fire. Here you have Danny who rose from the ashes like a phoenix, right? Right. So she's sort of like reborn as this fire person, and John is sort of reborn as this, you know, icy corpse or whatever, right? 
so and you know, I mean, who so far who who is a good match for Danny in this show? I mean, it's right. not it's not Jora, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, so so you and and we know that the Targaryens like to keep them thin, right? Uh, so that was that. And you can do the, worse than a, than a Jon Snow. Okay, so uh, that was one of the big reveals of of the series, and I think at this point in the show, most people who were like online following these message boards already knew, like they knew, like a couple seasons ago. Oh, that, really? that John was a Targaryen. Um, but you have kept yourself pure. Yeah, how would they... Was it just something that they surmised? or? So, yeah, so there's this major fan theory early on that, you know, Martin's dropped these hints in the books that uh, the, the, the John is actually the son of Lyanna and Rhaegar. And, of course, you know, you've got... Look, you've got millions of people following these breadcrumbs. Someone's going to come up with the right theory. Right. And then the question is how well the traction, how much traction the theory is going to get. And so as they're revealing these little breadcrumbs throughout the series, you know, people start crowing like I was right. I was right. Um, And then people who are just kind of casual show watchers get robbed of an experience. But Steve. You were not robbed of that. I was not robbed of that experience. So did you? So I'm curious. Like, uh, did you did you sniff that out? Because you saw you saw Tommen coming. You certainly saw that. You get credit for that. For sure. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And, and the, but the Tommen thing was more of a like I said. I I feel like there is a, a definite move towards uh, queens. Which, you know, the the kings just haven't cut it right. Um. So I was a little surprised that it. You know, and again, things may change down the road, but like I was a little surprised that uh, Winterfell was just obviously given to John. I mean, I understand from sort of the male-female dynamic in in the series, but um, I kind of felt like you know, Littlefinger, you know, what he was pushing towards like might have been onto uh-huh, something, right? Uh-huh. Um, but you thought Tommen was going out because you thought either Marjorie or Cersei's going to sit the throne, right? Right. And you got that like overnight. <laughs> but I guess I just to wrap up the Jon Snow business, uh, neither you nor Heather uh, kind of had sniffed out the the Jon as a Targaryen. No, and as soon as you like, you know, as soon as we see Lyanna in the uh, you know in bed, like that's when it starts to like like oh this is gonna be I think this is what this is gonna be. Sure, this sure. this is not. Because at first you start to think like, oh, wait a minute, is this, uh, you have this because of the way that the show and the, the book seems to go. You're like, oh, wait, did, did Ned and Leanna maybe? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it was kind of a passionate reintroduction of those two. Yeah. Now, you said that you really liked this episode, but there was a little bit of Dorn. Oh, yeah, I had my, my, ugh. As soon as Dorn shows up, <laughs> but Lady Olena telling them they all suck. I'm like, yeah, I'm into that. First like, off, Lady Olena like an angry little boy. I know Lady Olena is great always, so that helps. And then if she's gonna go in there and, and just throw shade at Dorn, yeah. <laughs> 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And now here's an excerpt of my conversation with medievalist Brian Pavlak. I asked Brian about that final episode of the HBO adaptation where the Council of Lords and Ladies just simply sit around and select Bran as king because I think that that struck many viewers as implausible. And Brian has an interesting take on this. So I thought I'd include that here. But we used to have such a bad example and... and Robert, then a bad example in Joffrey, and Tommen's a non-entity, and Cersei's just <laughs> evil and, and incompetent. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. She does not turn out to be a good ruler because she rules mostly through fear and terror, which again is another way to rule, right? We mentioned before personal promises. Well, the idea you break your promise, so you cross the person in power, you have fear and terror of being punished, tortured, executed, all these sort of things. And that's how you know, Joffrey, to some extent, and, and Cersei buys into it fully. Um, yeah. And, and, and all, of, all of this comes the great theme of the book, who deserves to be king? And on what basis should kingship be? And we have this strong idea of inheritance that we shouldn't fuss with the idea of a dynasty. Dynasty is politics through family. And that's the idea that dominates Ned Stark's mind, making him blind to powerful realities that a young boy maybe is not the best king in these times. And then when he realizes the young boy isn't a king, he says, well, it's got to go to Stannis, who also wasn't going to be the best king if he ever came to power. What is the best king? And the only person who thinks about that is Varys. Who would be the best king? Right. And here he is behind the scenes. You know, he has a couple lines in this chapter, sort of snarky lines. But we know he's not snarky because he's been talking to Ned honestly in the prison cell. Yeah. So he's the only one who cares about peace in the kingdom, as he says to Ned. And I think that's true. But kings are supposed to be concerned about peace in the kingdom. How do you justify being king through inheritance? And when lines die out, the Targaryens die out, although they don't really, that's why we have another civil war. We have civil wars. Mm. So when lines die out, like the Wars of the Roses, is a civil war because the dynasty's in trouble. And that's you know what George Martin took to base his book on this. This, you know, uh, Lancaster versus York becomes the Lannisters versus Stark. Right. And, and a dynasty in trouble. And ultimately, what decides it again is not just power, but loyalty. Who decides who's going to support whom? Yeah. And, and on what basis, how good a king they're going to be. Well, I was also going to say that it's it's also about the narrative, right? Because, yeah. like, for instance, 
after Eris is thrown down, it could have been Ned as king. It could have been mm-hmm. Jamie Lannister as king. It could have been uh, uh, Ned, John Aaron. It could have been a, a number of, of folks. Why was it Robert? Well, Robert has sort of way, way back in his lineage some connection to Targaryen blood, right? So it's almost like, yeah, they're going to overthrow the Targaryen king, the rightful sort of, mm-hmm. the rightful king, but they need to nod to this particular narrative. They know that the narrative The narrative power. of inheritance is very powerful. And we yes. can even see in our own days, you know, when we got George W. Bush and we got Hillary Clinton and we got right. people talking about the Trump children. Or now about, we're talking about JFK Jr. All the oh, QAnon, right? QAnon yeah. and JFK Jr. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the power, and that's the power of dynasty. And that's why dynasty works. And that's why it's so dominant for so long. The best time in the Roman Empire, I teach my students, is not when children inherited power. Was during the five good emperors when they had adoption and succession. Right. Where an emperor yeah. would adopt someone. Sure. And then then someone who was talented and that person would become an emperor because he was the son of the previous emperor, but through adoption. And of course, the great movie Gladiator shows how that is then destroyed under Marcus Aurelius. And the son takes over and things go to crap. Uh, and that's, you know, there's a lot of historical validity in that, even though the gladiator character mm-hmm. is made up. And we have the idea, of course, now of election, but kings were elected in the Middle Ages quite often, especially when dynasties died out. And they didn't necessarily have to have the best connection to the previous dynasty, maybe just a good connection and sometimes hardly any connection at all. Because Okay, tell me super- more about that. How did, how, how did such elections happen? Well, the collection I studied most because I wrote this biography of a, a bishop, Archbishop Albero of Montreux. He is a prince archbishop. He commanded armies, although at the, uh, he had, had military forces under his command. And the dynasty dies out. Henry V, emperor, the son of the previous emperor. Henry IV was the son of the previous emperor. Henry III was the son of mm. the previous emperor. So we had a dynasty going on. But Henry V dies without children. His wife um was as the empress and she goes off and marries uh, wants to become queen of england but that doesn't work out and that's the english civil war all sorts of fascinating stuff there but uh, and so there are two main families two dominant families it's against lannister versus york the two dominant families are the stauffens and the Velps. Hmm. and they both have powerful territories they both have royal connections because everybody's marrying everyone i mean you're you're related to all the other powerful families including royalty the Stauffens were both most loyal to the previous king. The Velfs wanted to be more independent, sort of a, a re- repeat of this whole Lancaster York, Lannister Stark thing. And at first, the Velfs claimed to be king because they, they grabbed the title and they tried to get their guy elected first. Mm-hmm. But Albero, my bishop, actually likes the Stauffens and tries to get the Stauffen elected. And so there, there's some negotiation and fighting and, and problems So we have this on. bishop who is trying to throw his political weight behind right, one behind of these. Right, behind one candidate or another. Yeah, and sure. um, eventually they compromise and one the, the, the Velf candidate sort of wins for a while. But when he dies, the Stauffens take over. But then the Velfs keep coming back and trying to defy and, and uh, take power back from the Stauffens. So this is long-running civil war which lasts a couple generations that basically destroys the german monarchy especially the popes start stepping in and the pope starts saying who should be king and so we have 
England, which develops a strong kingship working with Parliament. France, which develops a strong kingship, at least first working with the Estates General, but then they get rid of that. And the German kings become weaker and weaker and weaker. And all this depends on these dynasties as they're fighting over who is becoming kings and on what basis you get elections. And when mm -hmm. the Staufens die out and the Welfs become unimportant, then arises in Germany the seven prince electors, three bishops and four princes who basically elect the monarchy. Unfortunately, the, the inheritance principle is so powerful that they begin electing Habsburgs one after another. And soon the <laughs> Habsburgs just get become, become elected pro forma. But technically, they still have to be elected. And, and there are a couple times when they don't get elected. All right. So when this is going to happen, is there mm -hmm. like, I mean, who gets who gets to be on the nominating, you know, talking about like church politics, who gets to be on like the king nom nominating committee? Who gets to like have the have the vote? Who the powerful how, how is great, this determined? The powerful and great people, and it determined determined really by the historical circumstances. So, like when I was high school too, I was, I was a big war gamer, and an Avalon Hill war game came out. So we were on boards and we played with little tokens and rolled dice and stuff like that. You yeah. know, real war gaming back in the day. And there was a game that came out called Kingmaker. It was about the Wars of the Roses. Mm -hmm. It's about Earl of Warwick was the kingmaker because he was behind either supporting King Henry VI, the, the, the Lancasters, or bringing in the Yorkists. And he was basically playing a role deciding on them. And the game was getting all the other players either playing him and or other royal families over who's going to control who becomes king. And that's, again, what George Martin took to turn into Game of Thrones. And it all depends on who's powerful. For a moment, it looks like it's going to be Rob Stark. Well, we know what happened to him. Yeah, and sure. then for for a moment, you know, you know, at the end, and I don't take the last season as canon. I'm still waiting for Martin mm -hmm. to turn out that last damn book. But various people step up and become players, and that's the whole. You know, the next volumes is basically player after player after player who either survives to continue playing a little bit, or wipes out. And of course, Cersei becomes the dominant player, um, because she's shrewd. But she's ultimately not a good ruler. And uh... well, let me ask you this because I I feel like uh, probably people listening might have the same question. I think that the show got criticized a lot <laughs> because it seemed very implausible that it would just be, you know, a bunch of lords and ladies sitting in a circle deciding who is going to be the next king. So what you're saying is that. That's not as implausible. If, no. if a dynasty ends, if the if yes. a line ends, you would indeed have a group of powerful people just simply select the next king. Yes, I think that that's not the part that bothered me. The part was they selected Bran. How could this otherworldly non-human? How could this otherworldly non-human? There's so much of kingship was personal relationships. Uh -huh. No one can relate to Bran, although. <laughs> You know, Tyrion says, well, he can tell stories. Okay, he can tell stories. But he's unrelatable because he's non-human anymore. So that's just okay. weird. Yeah, but the actual function... But the idea that the powerfuls yeah. get together and say, we don't want a civil war. That's what happened in the Middle Ages at several points. Is we don't want a civil war. Let's uh -huh. make a compromise and settle on it. Now, of course, then circumstances would change as somebody gets married or somebody dies or somebody's born or some invasion happens. And that would as happens, of course, all through the series of Ice and Fire, um, changes the game. And right. we don't know who's then going to be going out coming out because Rob could have become king, but 
Yep, that didn't happen. And we nobody, I think, expected Cersei to become queen, but she made it happen. Sure. And yes, a bunch of people sitting down. They were all the dominant people. They can make everybody obey because they held the power between them mm-hmm. and they decided to work it out. I think that is right. completely plausible. Sure. That's the part that Well I'm that's okay that's with. interesting. I, I don't think I've I don't think I've heard that take before. And I think that this is actually why I have medieval historians on this podcast. <laughs> and when the key is they had to be selfless, right? They themselves, like one of the deadly sins, you know, is pride. Uh-huh. And they themselves had to decide my pride, my selfishness is not going to dominate. Like like, like the, the previous meeting of the mall, when Cersei says, yes, I'm going to help you fight the undead. And of course, she was lying through her teeth. Right. Right. She was right, not. Right. So she was going to play the game to the end for herself. Right. Sure. Um, but these other guys, the guys who survive, I think they would have kept it again until perhaps again the next crisis happened. Uh-huh. As two, what's going to happen when Bran dies? He's not going to have any children. Well, see, that's I guess that yeah, was not gonna my have any question. Children. My we next have an question monarchy was now like, forever. They could. Yeah, I think that that's what I think a lot of folks. I think that there is an inclination, there at least there was sort of a hint throughout the series that the structure of the government had to change. Yes. And so you have like Danny often saying, you know, break the wheel. And mm-hmm. then I think it's mm-hmm. uh, open to uh, interpretation what she actually means by that. I right? don't think she understood this. Right. And then, of course, you have someone like Varys who sort of, he at least he presents himself as someone who actually cares and represents the common folk because no one else will. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. or then you have... Every now and again, you'll like see a little glimpse into like, well, how does the Night's Watch, you know, have a new Lord Commander? Well, that's mm-hmm. pretty democratic, or at least mm-hmm. it looks that way on yeah. the surface. Right. So you've got these little hints, and then of course that last episode, Alex Bran, and mm-hmm. you're left to wonder afterwards, like, oh, is it? So is it just going to be always a three-eyed raven forevermore? <laughs> Who's well, now the king? I guess that's one solution to have a magical ruler. Because, of I course, another ma- yeah. common concept of kings, and we've seen this, of course, with many recent politicians. Yeah, divine blood or something. Exactly. Right? Or they're treated like gods, right? They, they, yeah. they claim to have divine blood or they are divine like the pharaohs. Uh-huh. Or they they well, they're, they're treated the like a god. the argument for the Targaryens, right? That, they, that they're actually a different kind of a species and the yes. rules don't apply to them and and that that was their advantage and we'll, we'll see you know, i'm curious as to how they illustrate this in the new series but having uh-huh. read fire and blood which again is is the reason why game of thrones is so popular and that book was not it was written like an historian <laughs> i said yeah. it was written like yeah. a history book and you know history books are often boring and it just didn't have the life and the fire that the song of ice and fire has so I hope they, they bring it to life in the so series. So you're saying that Fire and Blood lacked both fire and blood. It, it, in the sense of being inspiring and exciting and interesting to read. Uh-huh, I had to uh-huh. drag my way through it. it in the, it, in it the same a... sense that I'm reading The Silmarillion again right now. Uh-huh, Tolkien. Sure. That's a hard slog. And there's great stuff that happens, but his language is so archaic, just slows. Well, I think down. it's I think it's an issue of expectations. Yeah. You know, when I when I sit down to read through Josephus, oh. if I think that I'm going to be reading something that is, I I think that you have to right size your expectations. Yes. Going into it, there's some really interesting stuff in history books like that, mm-hmm. and yet you really have to attune yourself to the style of writing to get it. Yes. 
And, you know, it very well could be that it's something that that George felt like he he needed to have in place in order to finish the book. I think it's more likely that he thought, well, I can get this prequel deal in place if I finish this book. And that's, you know. I think eventually George realized that in addition to being a novelist, he was a producer of content. And you can get there's a lot of money to be made if you can get this thing on the screen. Yes. Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcasts on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked, and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe! Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them, or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I will revisit again the question of where is the climax in a Game of Thrones And, of course, shout out to my friend JJ, who tells me that I'm overthinking this. Yes, JJ, I'm probably overthinking this. Both Dragonwalker and Jane think that Littlefinger's betrayal of Ned in the throne room is the climax of the book. And I think that that's where I was leaning. And maybe I'm still leaning that direction. Justin thinks that at Cersei's 
you win or you die proclamation in the garden to Ned. He thinks that the story really turns after that. And I see that as a setup, Justin. doesn't have the feeling of a climax to me. The email that most got me thinking was from Melanie. So I'll just go ahead and read Melanie's email. I've never emailed feedback for any Bald Move podcast to date, so you should feel special. I do indeed feel special, Melanie. Thank you. The question you posed about the climax of A Game of Thrones got me thinking, though. And I don't think that there's one single climax. Since the story is told from the perspective of multiple characters, with multiple arcs, and multiple locations, the structure doesn't lend itself to the traditional exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution structure. So Melanie's basically arguing that because it's a multiple POV book, it doesn't easily fall into that particular structure. She continues. On top of that, it's a series where conflict leads to conflict, which leads to more conflict. Just think of A Storm of Swords, which contains the Red Wedding, Joffrey being killed, Tyrion's arrest with a trial and the trial by combat, Littlefinger pushes Lysa out of the moon door, Tyrion kills Tywin and Shay, the Battle of the Wall, and so many more huge climactic moments. There's no way to say that there is a climax in A Storm of Swords because it's just too awesome for one climax. Since the Game of Thrones has the least number of POV characters and plot lines, I will give it a shot and say that Ned's beheading is the climax of the book for Arya, Sansa, and Catelyn, and Rob. The story shifts to them dealing with the fallout of that major dramatic event and changes everything for all of them. I think that the climax of Danny's arc is when Jorah carries her into that tent. I think that the dragon's hatching is actually resolution to her first book storyline, despite it being the biggest, most dramatic moment for her. John and Tyrion are harder because it feels like we are still in rising action. The trial by combat at the Eyrie, I guess, could be the climax, but then we go meet up with Tywin and immediately start setting the table for the next book. John burns the white, but then he tries to desert and acts like a dumb teenager. Neither of these events seems particularly climactic for characters, let alone the whole book. Anyway, I hope you read this email since I brushed off my high school English knowledge of storytelling just for you. I'm loving the podcast. Thank you, Melanie. I really appreciate it. And I think I agree with most of what you're saying here. Yes, I think we need to measure these things differently because there's so many different storylines. I don't think that your argument that if there are multiple POVs, then there can't be a single climax. I think that even with the multiple POVs, you're telling a single story. You're just telling it in the way that you construct a mosaic rather than paint a picture, I guess. But you're still building. And I think that this is even more true for this book than a book like Storm of Swords. Ned's beheading has the natural feeling of a climax for most of the characters in the book. And I think that you and I might agree on this. It's just a very odd way to portray the event. Maybe JJ's right. Maybe I'm overthinking this. Maybe it is Ned's beheading. Maybe that's it. And George simply has understated the climax. As a result, I think this book gives us a peak experience that continues to rise and has two, three, maybe even four peaks at the top. 
So while Jane is probably right that there's multiple climaxes in this book, it absolutely does follow the traditional exposition of rising action, climax, falling action, and then resolution structure. And I agree with Dragonwalker that the dragons emerging at the end is really the resolution of this book and setting up for future storylines. Still no word from George on this, although I'm not going to give up. All right, then. That is how we end Season 6 of Electric Boogaloo.